Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you. Of course, it's going to depend on what time of day it is where you are watching or listening to this podcast. Hey, let me ask you something. Is there anything today that's just on your mind or just yanking your crank? Because I got one. I just don't like it when you pay $20 to go to the movies and the people next to you, behind you, or in front of you, wherever they are, all they're doing is talking. Talk, talk, talk. Talk before the movie starts, talk at home, talk after the movie, but not during the movie. There you have it. That's my moaning and groaning today. So anyhow, let's get right into it. So today's guest is Rebecca Frost Cuevas. And she is the author of Course Design Formula, How to Teach Anything. So what she's going to do is she's going to go through some of the steps on how to create an effective online course or curriculum to teach people anything, anywhere. And I mean, this podcast is very useful. Now, whether you are an instructor, a teacher who may want to learn how to create online content, this is going to be very, very helpful. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this. And let me know in the comments what you thought of this podcast. So Rebecca, well, thanks for joining me today and welcome. It's so great to be here, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And of course, the topic that we're going to talk about today, I mean, is really important, especially for educators, but more than just educators, because uh, you're going to talk to us a little bit about how to create these fantastic online courses that's going to be successful for not only the the trainer or the educator, but the people who are actually taking and viewing the courses, because both sides, I, I feel, are very, very important, because if you miss out on something as the educator... The person on the other end, it's going to, they're not going to get it. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, Rebecca, if you'd like to give a little bit of background story about yourself. Well, I've always been a teacher since my first day of kindergarten. I, I came home and lined up all my stuffed animals and taught them everything I'd learned in school that day. And I've really been teaching ever since. And for many years, I designed education programs for public utilities here in Southern California. So those were instructionally designed, but they were in-person programs teaching about, you know, how does the electricity get to your house? Don't waste water. How do we clean the water after it goes down the drain? Those kinds of things. Very Mm -hmm. exciting, very much fun, delivered in person to thousands of students in multiple school districts. And around 2007, I noticed that I was tripping over these digital whiteboards in all the classrooms I went into. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to to do a more online version or have something that teachers could access after hours or could reach more people? But when I took my already highly effective, you know, in-person programs and tried to put them online doing what everyone does at first, which is say, okay, this works. Let me just digitize it and put it online. The result was not the same, you know, Chuck, it wasn't engaging, it wasn't fun, it wasn't, you know, there's such a difference between if you're in fourth grade going out on the playground and doing an activity with your friends with hula hoops on the playground and being an electron, that's a really fun activity. Watching other kids do that on a video 
is a really boring sad activity. <laughs> Not so much fun. <laughs> no, and I was very curious, you know, as an educator and as a researcher to understand why it wasn't working. So I went back to school for a second master's in instructional technology, and I eventually found the answer. And I wrote this book, which is called Course Design Formula, How to Teach Anything to Anyone Online. And basically I explained the whole process, everything I learned and why you have to redesign your learning for the online space. If, if creating a course is like designing a house, creating an online course is like designing a tiny house because there's so little sort of mental processing space left to work with by the time mm. people have figured out how to log on to the website and how to navigate the interface. And, you know, even if they're skilled with technology, every online platform is different. And so you have to be very intentional and you have to really understand what you're doing when you design an online course or even one lesson or just any kind of workshop or learning program. In real life, you can kind of wing it. You know, you're always getting feedback from the audience. You, you can tell when things are maybe going off track, but especially if your course is self-paced, you really need to build ways of getting feedback and making sure that people are learning and getting value out of it into your mm -hmm. program from the beginning. How important is it today and into the future to, to learn how to create these online courses? Is it something that is gonna continually grow or is it just a fad because we just went through the pandemic mm. where everybody was at home and you know everybody in education just did that mass rush to create online content or to figure out how to do webinars and now they're back in class or people are back in the office do we need such a thing as online course well to answer your question chuck i started working on this in 2007 so well before the pandemic i wrote my book in 2019 november of 2019 it came out also before the pandemic so the pandemic i think showed us what happens when we don't do a good job of designing <laughs> online learning. That's one reason people have been very eager to go back. You know, many people have been eager to go back into the classroom and there's absolutely nothing wrong with learning in person. I mean, but even learning in person should be well designed to produce, you know, a highly effective learning experience. So if you can design for the online space, you can also design for the offline space. It doesn't always go the other way unless you actually have learned. What I've created is, the minimum viable learning design, you know, a kind of highly focused, targeted, effective method that either an experienced teacher or someone who's never taught before can take to teach well online. And let's face it, you might be asked to do a Zoom presentation for work or what if you have a job interview? I mean, any now our conversation today, this is not a designed experience. We're just having a, right. a free form conversation or if it's designed, you've designed it on, on your end, you know, but I as a guest can't design anything. But if you're holding a meeting where you have a certain you know, agenda that you want to make sure, you know, flows a certain way, it could be useful to understand, you know, these principles even there. So I think that online and distance interaction is here to stay. 
I, I've never been a subscriber to the whole, you know, idea that we create online courses just as a get rich quick scheme. I'm about how to, how can you effectively teach people whether they're physically located with you or at a distance. And I think today we all want to reach people all over the world. So yeah. it's here to stay in that sense. I'm really glad that you used the word and said distance interaction because yeah. we truly are, we, we talk about engagement. We want to be engaged and that is interaction. So I'm, I'm really glad that you said that word. You know, one of my uh, students in my master course, I have a, a six month master course that's like a, a community of practice for transformational online teaching. And she delivered a presentation that she's done many times in person, but she used the, the course design formula methodology to create the, the online version. And she got engagement that she said was off the charts more so than it had been. And her presentations, I'm sure, were excellent in person as well. But this was even, you know, exponentially more engaging. So that was very exciting to hear about. Uh, well, you know, this is probably the perfect time to let folks know where they could go to find out some information about you because you have a wonderful website if you wouldn't mind letting people know where and what that uh, website address is. Thank you, Chuck. My website is learnandgetsmarter.com, which is what I used to say to my son when I dropped him off at school every day. So I named my business after that, learnandgetsmarter.com. They can also go to Amazon and look for my book or just go to Google and look for my book, which is called Course Design Formula how to okay. teach anything to anyone online but just course design formula will pull up everything and so. folks should know that it's not just about the book because your website again is fantastic i'm looking at it right now you. and you do consulting you have your book you have a blog you have courses there's so much such great wealth of information there to help people get started in doing this um, so with me saying that how does one get started in putting together something like an online course that's going to be successful? I love that question, Chuck. Well, first, let me ask you this. What do you think most people would say that they would do? Let's say you, you just stopped someone on the street and said, quick, create an online course. What do you think the first thing they would say is? I don't know how to use PowerPoint. <laughs> okay, so they, they exactly they go right to media, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or yeah. many people would say, I don't know how to make a video, or I have to make a video. I don't even start teaching about media until halfway through a fourteen-week program. So the first thing you need to do is really narrow down your topic. But before you can narrow down your topic, you have to even sort of run through your own brain, like what your topic is. Do like a brain dump. You know, um, I actually have a free course called Don't Serve a Whole Cow. Um, which, you know, imagine if you go to someone's house for, for dinner. Now, I don't eat beef, so this is just a metaphor. But um, you want a steak dinner, and instead this live cow is running around the living room. The, the live cow is everything you know that, that you might possibly want to teach. So you need the live cow first, but you have to do a lot of things to it, you know, to, to make it something that people can consume. So start by sort of just doing that brain dump and then go through a process. And again, I have free programs. It's very fun and easy and fast to sort of help you narrow down out of that vast amount of stuff that any one of us could teach. We all have tremendous you know, resources of knowledge and wisdom. What would you like to focus on most? Then you really need to do some market research or learner research because 
A course is not about taking everything we know and just putting it in a digital medium. A course mm -hmm. is, a, is a, really an act of service. It's like, who needs help? What help do they need? What transformation do they want to achieve? Your course is a way to help people make a transformation that takes them from where they are now to where they want to be. So you need to understand who are those people? What are their qualities? Not so you can market to them. I mean, that too, but so you can teach them, you know, and what's their starting point? So again, I, I apologize for the variety of my metaphors. No, no. It's, you know, let's say you want to go to Paris, right? It's going to be a different trip to Paris if you're starting from Belgium than if you're starting from ta Tanzania, you know, much longer trip from Tanzania involves a lot of complicated steps. So you need to understand, you know, who are these learners? What do they already know about this topic? And, and what's the goal that they want to achieve? And then you backwards design the course from the goal. And that's a process mm. that I teach. Uh, there's an educational researcher named Robert Gagné, brilliant, brilliant researcher, and he discovered what he called the five domains of learning. So meaning that it doesn't matter what the subject is, let's say it's tennis, right? Well, you could just do a course on the history of tennis. That's at the end of that, someone will be able to verbally describe to you the history of tennis. They won't be able to play it. They won't have changed their attitude about it. They could just tell you about it. That's called verbal information. Now, if you want to teach them how to move their body correctly to, to do a proper tennis serve, that's called motor skills, physical movement, motor skills. If you want them to get over their fear of tennis or get a winner's mindset, that's mindset change about tennis in this case. Okay. If you want them to develop you know, subliminal strategies for learning about tennis while you sleep, that's called a cognitive strategy, a way to learn how to learn. And the final one is called um, intellectual skills, or I call them how-to skills, which would be actually be understand the rules of tennis. You know, if someone serves the ball here, then you do this. If this, then that. So those are five different approaches to the same topic. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what do people most want to get out of it? And most people will say, but, but Rebecca, I need all of those. And that's fine. That's where I bring in my virtual, virtual assistant, Babushka. Babushka is one of these Russian nesting dolls. And you know, where there's a big one and the medium one and a little one. And I use this to demonstrate the different scale that you're designing at. Okay. So your whole course has to have, let's say your whole course is how to play tennis better. It's going to be a how-to course. So not just movement, because it has movement, but you're going to help them improve their mindset, understand the history of tennis. All those things are going to be in it. The biggest doll is how-to. So we're going to structure it properly for what Gagne's research taught us works best for people to learn, you know, a set of rules. If you want to play tennis better, then do these things. Then inside that, we have, let's say... Um, well, there's going to be a mindset change. You got to get over your fear of tennis before you can even play it, right? And then maybe inside that, there's going to be some motor skills like relaxation or proper positioning. So you can see that understanding the scale, you know, are you designing the whole course? Are you designing a section of the course, a lesson, one PDF? So now that PowerPoint that they were originally going to do, 
By the time we've designed everything, the PowerPoint will make itself because we'll know exactly what has to go on every slide, you know, and then mm -hmm. using power, you know, they could use Canva, PowerPoint, Word doc, doesn't matter. Really the hard thing is just understanding from the learner's point of view, what has to happen first, second, third, because they can only process one thing at a time. Yeah. And I, I'm, the reason I use PowerPoint is it's just there in my head, my, the forefront of my thought, but also because of the fact that uh, folks who are not in like a K through 12 type of education may not be aware of Canva, mm, uh, but there, you can use any tool out there to create an online course, whether it be PowerPoint slides, uh, you know, text and slides or video mixed media, anything like that. So um, what you're talking about, the five uh, domains, five domains, I, I like that. And I immediately, immediately see where I could split my horizontal paper in five and just write things down. So I see it visually rather than trying to think about it because I'll get lost if I do that. I actually have some if, if you sign up for the free resources um, from my book and I can give you the link. It's basically learnandgetsmarter.com forward slash free resources. Uh, one of the, one of the resources is a template that shows you the domains of learning, you know, so oh, that fantastic. you can print it and keep it next to your desk. And, um, you know, I, I think that's there. I'll have to double check, but if not, I'll send you one so people can have okay. it. And I keep it in a sheet protector, you know, because it does take time to kind of internalize this stuff into your own head. Right. And these are resources that people should always have available to them, uh, especially in the beginning. Like you said, these are five domains. I have a hard enough time remembering two things, let alone five. You know, I think there's probably a study where we can remember three different things or something like that. There, so. you, oh, my goodness, Chuck, you're mentioning the most important thing of all for online learning, for any learning, but especially for online learning, which is I call it the narrow doorway of working memory. So yes, research has shown that we can really only remember at most five to seven things. That's why phone numbers are, you know, five, are a certain number of digits long and not longer. And of course, none of us can remember any phone numbers anymore, but thank God we don't have to because we have our contacts. But yeah, and so if you try to, to, to impose more than that on people, they just can't remember. So you have to chunk things up. Yeah, the other question that I have then, and I, I know I'm jumping ahead, does it make a difference if you have too many words on a page? I love the questions you're asking, Chuck. I think you must be a natural teacher. Um, because yes, that's a principle of um, teaching verbal information, which was remember I said about the history of tennis. Mm -hmm. So let's take one PowerPoint slide. You only want a very small amount of text surrounded by plenty of white space so people can, you know, focus on just the text and a relevant graphic to provide context. And also the graphic, that's called dual coding. So you're you're getting the same information into your mind through a verbal channel and a visual channel. So it reinforces it. Um, so definitely, you know, what I what I often tell people, you know, sometimes people go, oh well I don't want to have too many slides. You know, Here's the thing about that. Okay, I'm going to use another metaphor. Imagine you have an ocean liner full of heavy rocks and you need to get the rocks to shore and you only have one little tugboat to do, little uh, rowboat to do that. 
So the rowboat mm-hmm. is your narrow doorway of working memory. You know, the rocks are the information, the shore is your learner's mind. You can't overload the rowboat because you don't want to make too many trips. It will sink. You know, so if it sinks, you're not making any trips. Right. It's if you have if every slide stays under that threshold of, like you said, about three things at the most, people won't notice how many slides they'll they'll be absorbed in the flow. It'll be like I literally use digital flip books, but, you know, think of a flip book video. They'll feel mm-hmm. like they're watching a movie where they can control the pace of the flow of information and they're absorbing it and they're engaged. They're not counting the slides. Okay. I like that. Uh, the other question too, is I often see whenever I watch webinars, hosted webinars or pre-recorded lessons, folks tend to use a lot of, maybe they're using fewer words, but all of a sudden there's so many images on there. And a lot of it seems like it doesn't pertain to what they're saying. Is that, wrong yes. and i ask that because for me I'm, I'm reading and i go that picture doesn't match now my brain seems like it's confused and i think about and remember the picture more than i do what was written down the, there's so many things that you said some have to do with usability but you know just sticking in with the the theme of presenting verbal information with relevant that's the keyword relevant graphics that provide context so, I mean, unless you're trying to get someone's attention and deliberately have them go, wait, I'm confused, doesn't compute, which you might do on purpose at the beginning of something to say, okay, what's wrong here, you know, and, and then have them talk about it. But that's the only excuse I could think of for doing that. If you're trying okay. to actually teach it, like that would be a good attention getter in a lesson about what not to do when teaching online. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but yeah, it's the same principle. I mean, keep everything. You don't want purely decorative pictures or a big bugaboo of mine, background music that's irrelevant, you know, and distracting because then people can't focus. Mm. Now, that said, everyone's different. Some people mm-hmm. can only do their homework with the TV on or background noise. So, you know, the learner can always adjust those things. You know, you can tell people, you know, what's your learning style? If you have to have background music in order to think, you can always put it on your phone, you know, mute yourself or something like that. But if you as the instructor impose this on everyone, now people have no way to tune you out, you know, tune out what's overwhelming to just focus on what's relevant. Yeah, and I I hope you don't mind that I ask these questions. I'm just trying to think, (laughs) what is it that somebody who's not used to doing uh, online training, who is, uh, who is forced, who has to do it now, what do they experience and what, th- what do they go through? So I'm just trying to think some of those, uh, some of those thoughts that they might be having. Um, and, and a lot of it to me comes to, you, you, to me at least, I see habits of people again, just talked about putting too many images, images that don't relate, that do not pertain to what it is. The other thing, too, is the audio. But the other thing that I used to see a lot of, and then it went away, but I'm, I'm starting to see it come back, is a lot of these what I'll call special effects. Um, text coming in, floating, hopping mm-hmm. around, because I feel as though that they think this is going to grab their attention, number one. Number two is they say, this is really cool. Is there a right place and the right time to do things like that? So absolutely. So there's a concept, I have to mention it, and I'm going to illustrate it with, this is a, a heavy rock shaped like a heart. And 
so imagine it's very heavy. This is illustrating a concept called cognitive load. So the heaviness of the learning that you're trying to get into your brain, right? And there's three types of cognitive load. One is that the stuff is just naturally hard to learn. You got to break that down into little chunks, make it smaller and lighter and easier. The second is it's not hard to learn. Like maybe you're trying to teach them how to make a peanut butter sandwich, but you made it so complicated and confusing that by the time they're done, they can't figure it out. There you got to just use proper learning design and simplify. The third part is what you're talking about, which is called germane cognitive load, which means the, the learner's engagement in the task. And there you want some, but not too much. And the challenge is getting it right. And here's the thing. I, I, this is why I always say, don't start with the media. Put the media last. If you start with the media, if you go, oh, this, this cool bell and whistle, you know, lets me have this thing fly in. Now you're going to be busy playing with that, having a good time with that. But it may be irrelevant to the lesson. Now, if it's relevant, great, use it. That's a, that's a useful technique. But also use it sparingly. You know, it's like hot sauce. Too much is going to overwhelm the dish. So that's a matter of understanding the medium you're using, what it can do, and how that relates to the learning principle, which should be behind everything. I also feel like I can't not answer your question um, without mentioning, I can't answer your question without mentioning the use of AI right now. Because I think a lot of people who were yes. thrown into the situation of, you know, got to come up with something by tomorrow are going to go right to chat GPT or, you know, one of the other AI systems and ask it how to do that. Now, that may or may not be appropriate depending on their use case, but I want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, I believe it's the Supreme Court and or the Copyright Office have ruled that only a creation created by a human being has copyright protection. So number one, if you're dealing with any sensitive, you know, intellectual property, you know, your, your proprietary secrets, your companies, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I wouldn't personally, that's just me, because you want to maintain control over your intellectual property and be able to copyright. Secondly, unless you're already an expert in the subject, you know, AI can spit out something that's smart or something that's wrong, and only experts will know if it's wrong. So I'd say stick to your own expertise. You know, what, what I teach is basically software for your brain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you, you want a large language model? I've got a language model. It's called English, you know. <laughs> so um, basically... You need to understand how the learner is going to, you know, what is your goal? What's the, let's say it's a meeting that you've, give me an example and I'll walk you through it. How to change a brake on your car. Okay, so it's an automotive, <laughs> it's an automotive shop doing a training, um, you know, for their new employees or something like that? Or? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. and keeping in mind that I know zero about changing brakes, so... <laughs> Nobody take this as an actual lesson, please. <laughs> I um, thought I'd throw you a twist on that one. Yeah, that, no, but that's good. I love it because if I don't have the subject matter knowledge, I will especially be highlighting the learning design knowledge. So that's actually an important mm -hmm. point. So first of all, it does have the words how to win it, but you can't use that as the diagnostic criterion. It's at the end of this, whatever it's going to be, that you know, learning activity, they will have gained a skill. They will know how to perform a skill. That's called an intellectual skill, a how-to. So we're going to structure it that way. So 
there's two ways you could do it up front. Let me ask you your preference. Do you want to start with the big ideas you need to understand about changing brakes on a car, or do you want to start by having them gather their tools and resources? What's your preference? Yes, gather the tools and resources. So for this particular example, I think that's a wise choice. What I've discovered from working with hundreds of course creators is most how-to skills, we do better to start with the big ideas, but the, this particular one, they need to have those things right there and they're gonna really change the brakes, not just talk about them. So let's go get our stuff. So you're gonna tell them, here's what you need. These are the tools. You know, this is the, where you get your new brake from. So they're gonna have all those things. That's the first big chunk of the course, like the first module or chapter. So maybe you'd have a lesson on tools you need, you know, um, safety precautions. Um, no, that's actually gonna, we'll save the safety precautions for the next chapter. This is just the tools. Tools you need, you know, where to get the new brake from, you know, whatever you need. The second big section is going to be big foundational concepts you need to understand, big ideas, safety precautions, you know, what's the best time of day, temperature conditions, whatever. Someone who knows how to change brakes would tell us, you know, these are the things you have to keep in mind. So that's what mm -hmm. goes there. The third part is the heart of a how-to, which is steps to follow. Do this, do this, do this, do this, in this order. Now notice, you've already got all your stuff. You already understand the big ideas. So you're not saying, do this. Oh, wait, I forgot to tell you, you have to do it on a flat surface. Oh, wait, you didn't block the car and now it's rolling downhill. You know, we don't want any of that. So when you get to the steps to follow, you're just doing the steps because you already have your materials and your ideas. And then the last big section of a how-to course is troubleshooting, special conditions, tweaks, make it work for you, exceptions to the rules. So it's like, oh, but what if you're working with a, you know, hybrid car? Or what if you can't get the right kind of brake? Or what if the temperature is 250 degrees? Or whatever the conditions are. You know, the example I like to use is how to bake a chocolate cake. Oh, you're baking your cake on top of Mount Everest? Well, you have to adjust what I just told you because, you know, high altitude baking has a different set of rules. So basically that structure works beautifully for learning a skill. It's, it's easy, it's simple. And the reason I picked that is I was hoping that you had no idea about it, about brakes and I automotive. <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted the people to know that this, what we're talking about can be applied to any subject matter. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, uh, it, it, it's not, it could be applied to anything. Uh, that's basically what I wanted you to be able to uh, give that explanation and have people understand, yes, I can apply it to automotive, I can apply it to mathematics, I can apply it to science, uh, whatever it might be. You know, Chuck, there's a famous saying that you hear a lot, you don't know what you don't know. But there's a corollary to that, which is you can't unknow what you do know. And the problem that a lot of experts have, who are experts in a topic, unlike me with the brakes, is that they know so much about their subject matter that they can't step back and do what I just did. So that's what I help them do, which is, so I've, I'm gonna bring another one of my props. This is a beautiful gem. So I use this to represent, it looks like, I got it at Michael's, so it's not really valuable, but it looks like a very, very valuable multifaceted gem. And I use this to represent your gems of content, the expertise that you, if you were an automotive expert, you know, about brakes or whatever your topic is, you would have all this very valuable content. The problem is people use their content as a structuring device and it doesn't work. 
because they know everything about breaks. So instead of just, when they start telling you the big ideas, they're going to get off into the history of breaks or uh, who knows where they're going to end up. I know because it happened to me, I knew so much about how my presentations worked in the real world that I couldn't see a different way to digitize them and, you know, to, to design them for online. It was only because circumstances forced me to do my master's project on a topic I knew zero about. That's how I discovered that it's the learning design structure, like I just showed you for a how-to course. That's what works. And it's basically for other structures, for the different types of learning, you know? So, and you can okay. have a how-to lesson, a how-to document. You can have that how-to at any of the scales of the wooden doll. The whole course, we just did a whole course designed like that. But you could have a whole course with a different structure, but one module is designed like that. Gotcha. So. Well, I mean, this is really valuable information. Uh, again, for the very, you know, going back to the very beginning when I asked about, is this something that's going to be important? Is it going to be ongoing or is it just a fad? This, of course, is definitely has been happening. We could even go way back before... Uh, 2007 and stuff, college, universities would do something similar with their online courses and stuff like that. It's, it's been here for a while, but um, we have new tools. You mentioned Canva. Genially, <laughs> there's so many different um, articulate, you know, there's tons yes. of tons of software. But, you know, again, you don't need fancy tools. You can create a great course. You don't even need a course platform. I mean, I'm a Thinkific expert. I highly recommend Thinkific, but you don't need that. You can, you can teach your course by email. You can teach your course on the telephone. You know, if you're teaching people in a country that doesn't have good, only has cell phones and hardly has internet access, you could structure it in a way that you're getting the information out there to them in a way they can absorb bit by bit. That's the beauty of learning design. Your design is platform independent. You can move it to a different platform. If you start with media, now you're married to that media and you ha it's mm. going to be really hard to change it. So I know you just answered what I'm going to ask, but I'm going to ask it and <laughs> you may say it a different way. How different is it to put together a course when it's a live webinar versus a pre-recorded uh, learning experience is what I'll call it. So by live webinar, you mean like a, like a Zoom meeting or something? Like a Zoom are, meeting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And well, we'll, we'll, I'm going to add where the, f there's a difference between a Zoom webinar and a Zoom meeting. The meeting people see face to face. We're going to yeah. say it's a webinar where they do not see the faces. And you, you as the trainer, you can't see the reactions or anything. So maybe you have like 500 people and you're mm -hmm. live. But now are, is the chat enabled or you get zero feedback from them? We'll say we'll say chat is enabled. Sure. Yeah, I'll tell you what I would do in that situation. I use a tool, and actually, this is a tool I absolutely love called Mentimeter, which is it looks like PowerPoint, but everybody can respond on their phone. Mm. So you can ask a question. You know, which do you like better, cats or dogs? And they can only check one. And out of five hundred people, you'll quickly have a poll from the entire room that shows up you know, on the slide so everyone sees the result. Or you can do a word cloud. How are you feeling today? And again, 500 people, you're going to get a lot of different words. But let's say most people feel happy. That word's going to be really big in the middle or stressed. So now you've taken the temperature of the whole group. And you know, I just am not a fan. If you're asking people to show up live 
And then they can't interact with you. They can't chat with each other. They can't put their questions. To me, what's the value of them showing up live? They might as well watch that pre-recorded at their own convenience. So what is the difference between um, what we're talking about as far as putting together learning courses where they are watching something pre-recorded uh, versus this live Zoom webinar? So a course does not, a course can also have live components, mm -hmm. you know, um, a course, a course, what distinguishes a course is that it is a structured, if you think of the word course, like a race course, for example, a course implies a kind of circular path that starts somewhere and ends at a higher turn of the spiral back where you started, but at a higher level of realization. So to me, that's a course. It's like takes you okay. in a complete journey, but now you understand more than you did before. That's, okay. that's what makes the course unique. So now the webinar could do that too. A lot of people use webinars as sales mechanisms. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why they use them. And so if you hear especially people going type yes, you know, or type, that's because they want people to start saying yes. So they're going to say yes to the offer. That's really more about a marketing process. Sure. And marketing can have teaching in it. Um, and I'm not opposed to marketing, but, you know, it depends on the purpose. So can you ask me... I feel like I'm not zeroing in on the real key issue of the question. So I'm thinking as far as standpoint from educators in a K through 12 type of situation where some are, well, again, we'll go with the, the recent past where they had to do online classes. Now, they were live. Now, some of them were asked or told to create content for learning for their students. Mm. So I was trying to figure out for the educators themselves, uh, is setting up a live Zoom type of thing versus creating content oh, for I students see. to learn, is there a big difference in how you put that together? I think there's so much difference depending on the age of the students. You know, teaching five-year-olds mm -hmm. going to be a lot different than teaching, you know, postgraduate students. Sure. Um, how well do you know them? Is this your same class that you had, you know, again, live in kindergarten and now you've got to do that online? Um, so there's a set of learning design principles that you would follow, but the what you're going to do is going to be different depending on your audience, their starting point, the the setting, you know. So I don't see yeah. a big difference between web. I mean, to me, a, a webinar to be highly effective, especially if you've got those constraints that they can't talk on the chat and stuff. You still got to design it. Like I, I've spent all day designing, you know, a one hour presentation. Um, for sure. That's what I wanted to hear from you. It, yeah. It's 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 all about design. Right. You can't just talk and do it, and you can't do it like you are doing it in person in the classroom. Okay, class, open up your book and okay, follow and read. You need to actually design the course, whether you're doing it a live webinar or a uh, created content that's uh, to be viewed later. Absolutely. And now I do have to bring in another piece of what Gagne talks about. I'm not giving this away. I have give this away already in free webinars and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> okay. So, and also it's general knowledge, but it's the way that I help people structure it that makes it pop. So Gagne, the same researcher I was telling you about, he went and observed good teachers in action in physical classrooms. And he just kept an open mind. He said, why are they good? What makes them also, what makes these teachers so good? And he noticed, and I'm so grateful that he did, he noticed that these effective teachers were all doing these nine things in a certain order. And he named those the nine events of instruction. Now you'll notice nine is more than five or seven. We're not gonna remember nine, right? So think right. of it this way. 
There's three things you got to do before you actually teach the stuff. Three things you got to do while you're presenting the new stuff and three things you got to do after. So now think of like when you go to the doctor, right? For a minor, a minor surgical procedure. The doctor does not meet you in the lobby with a sharp implement and start stabbing you in the guts. That's not surgery, that's assault, right? I mean, you, you go in and there's an intake process and who are you and why are you here today and how are you feeling and are you fasting? All that happens before the procedure. Education is really like surgery because you are changing people's brain. You know, it's very mm -hmm. powerful if it's done right. So then the actual procedure, which you have to be sure what kind of procedure is this, you know, are, follow the steps properly, make sure the person's, you know, on board with it, you know, so forth. And then afterwards, you also don't just throw the person out on the street in their medical gown and say, bye. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there's a sort of cool down Let's integrate this with, you know, check up on you. How are you doing? You know, um, did we successfully accomplish what we set out to do? And how are you going to integrate this with the rest of your life? Same process happens with learning if it's done right. So those nine events need to be built into whether it's your live teaching or your, you know, your live webinar. Good teachers often instinctively do those things in live teaching. That's what makes them good teachers. But if you're even if you're a very skilled good teacher in a physical classroom you're probably feeding off the energy and the feedback that you get from the from the students so to do it online you have to be more intentional and build those feedback mechanisms in which is why i love mentimeter because you can teach a couple things and then say you know how do y'all feel about that you know and and it keeps people on their toes it also shows you where the whole group is at you can respond to questions as you're going it's it's really great yeah. And I, before we close out, because I don't want to take too much of your time on this, and there's, as kept on saying, you can remember seven to nine, five to seven things. We, we've hit upon a lot. <laughs> so we don't want people to forget or just be overloaded. Um, the way I'm looking at this and understanding is I think of things as before, during, and after. What do I need to do before? Exactly. What do I need to do during? And then there's that after. It's it's even in sales things, you know, your, your pre-sales, your sales, and your clothes, all that kind of stuff. So I, I guess what I want to add to all of this is don't be afraid to to follow the process, to follow the rule, because it's only going to make you more successful at this. Don't think because you can wing it in the classroom or wing it wherever you are. Like you're saying, oftentimes people are able to feed off the energy or, or look at somebody and go, oh, okay, I need to guide, I need to go this way. You may not be in that situation all the time, so doing what you said, having a process is very, very important. So that's going to help no matter what. That's what I believe. I love that you said that, Chuck, and that was really my discovery. That's what I discovered in the course of my master's project. All the creative things I tried doing, you know, based on what I would have done in a classroom, just can get overwhelming and confusing in the online space. We start with a very strict design. Later, you can add the creative bells and whistles as appropriate once the, the foundations are, mm -hmm. are solid, you know? Yeah. And That's, that goes same with the PowerPoint like we're talking about. Yeah. Finish the PowerPoint and then add your special effects at the end. Don't exactly. do it along the way. Because <laughs> we as educators, yeah, we as educators, we'll get lost. Yeah. We'll, we'll find you. <laughs> you know, they say oh, kill, kill your darlings. You know, writers say kill your darlings. <laughs> if you get too enamored of your own prose, we can do that too. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, because I know this is going to be really important for those who are out there listening and, and watching. What tools do you use? Because I, I know it does not make a difference, but there's always that curiosity of, oh, theirs is better because they're using. But we're not saying that. We're, I'm just asking, what do you use as far as the tools that, um, that help you? I love PowerPoint. I'm so happy that you mentioned it. I think PowerPoint is ideal for structuring verbal information. And, and most courses at the granular level of what you're actually serving up step by step, no matter what domain of learning, verbal information is how you're going to deliver it. So getting just the right amount of information on a slide, PowerPoint's perfect for that. You know, it, okay. it allows you to have a small amount of text, a relevant graphic, and the learner controls the pace. And then you can save that as a PDF, I use digital flipbooks and I have a free course, takes less than an hour on, on my um, website on the courses area of how to create a digital flipbook. That allows you to turn your PowerPoint into like a book where they turn the pages. And you can even put videos in there, you know, um, it, it's great, you know, really, really fun. And then I like Thinkific for my course platform. I, okay. I really love Thinkific. And um, I also like Mentimeter very much to keep that engagement going during live presentations. And I do have some uh, e-learning that uses Articulate, uh, Storyline, and Rise, but, you know, they have other tools available now, too, that are simpler to use. So there's many, there's lots of great tech out there. But really, if your learning design is beautiful... You can use very simple tech. Oh, Wobo is another great. If you look up wobo.app, it's a workbook that you can actually embed right into your course platform. And each student will get their own clean copy and, and write their own answers right in the window. Only the student and the teacher can see it. Wow. Okay, it's that's very, tool. very helpful. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, folks, you can go to uh, learn and get smarter dot com right and chuck you know i'm so inspired now by you sharing this um the way you have i haven't really created a i don't think i have a blog post about like my tech stack but i could create one um just make it a blog post so that people will be able to i'll just repeat what i just shared with you so that uh, people oh. can easily have access to those tools fantastic that'd be great uh, well i i, I think Rebecca Frost-Cuevas, this has been fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. I can tell that you yourself are a skilled teacher, and uh, a lot of what you're doing here is teaching too, of course, and I so appreciate you know, the opportunity to talk with you and, and your audience, and uh, I hope everyone keeps learning and getting smarter and stay fabulous. You heard it. Thank you very much. Wow, what a podcast, if I don't say so myself. And remember, that's Rebecca Frost Cuevas. And her book is Course Design Formula, which can be found at Amazon and many other bookstores. So thanks again for watching and listening to this podcast. And please do me a favor, like, share, comment, and continue to come back. We'll have more fantastic guests. Until next time, have a great day and keep learning. Bye-bye.